you know, you don't need an army if you have really, really, really very smart people who have got the brain power to put together really unique, innovative capabilities. Back to the live drop. I'm talking with Anthony Wells. He's the author of Between Five Eyes, 50 Years Inside the Five Eyes Intelligence Community. That's right, 50 years. I was really fortunate to be able to have a uh, kind of rambling discussion with uh, with Tony Wells. Uh, we talked about Bletchley Park, some people you might have heard of like Lord Blackett and Sir Harry Hinsley, uh, Bayesian Mathematics and Log Likelihood, Alan Turing, Mansfield Cummings, that's why the head of SIS is called C from him. Uh, Kim Philby, Admiral Godfrey, Admiral Dennison, William Stevenson, James Jesus Angleton, subject of um, his next book. And we talked about some places like Pine Ridge in Australia and Spy Valley in New Zealand. Again, between five eyes, it's the United States, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And this is a wide range of discussion. And he explains it pretty clearly. And also, he saw the Beatles live begin transmission. This is a pretty amazing work for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's a definitive, authoritative, I think, research destination for the Five Eyes relationship. And you're going to explain that at some point. But it also, um, the, the the word "I" kept popping up. <laughs> So, I'm like, it's more like it's a it's a memoir in a way of a lot of Im- of important work. There's not much navel gazing going on. You seem to be pretty uh, pretty busy for all those years. Yeah, it's been 50 years, uh, uh, Mark. You know, I was a career naval officer, then got uh, into the intelligence business, and I got trained in the late 60s by some very very interesting and wonderful people like Sir Harry Hinsley, who had been a Bletchley Park codebreaker. You know, Sir John Masterman, who was the leader of the double cross system that completely for the Nazis in, in a whole variety of, of different ways and um, people like that. And then I had some other people, you know, who are current. I, I mean, I knew Admiral Godfrey, who'd been the DNI during the critical early years of the war. And I also wrote a PhD thesis on British intelligence, British naval intelligence, 1880 to 1945 at King's College London. And that sort of marked me out as someone who was regarded as you know, had reasonably good expert knowledge on on not only just naval intelligence, but the whole British intelligence-US relationship, you know, right up until that period. Then obviously I became a member of the community myself. I was over here in the mid-70s working, uh, you know, with the Navy and the CIA and people out of the British Embassy. And then, you know, I came back permanently in 83 to work on a very, very special, highly classified program, which frankly is still... Uh, buried to this day. It's a silver bullet, and I obviously can't talk about that. But I worked on that until the Cold War ended. And then I had a partnership with a very distinguished retired US congressman. Um, And then I was invited to form a company, uh, which I ran for 25 years to support the um, Department of Defense and the intelligence community, doing a lot of very specialist work. So I did that for literally a quarter of a century and retired from that in late 2017. And then for a couple of years, I worked with a very specialist group from Cheltenham, England and Fort Meade, Maryland on some you know very important stuff to do with cyber. I've spent all those years in and out of doing all the things that uh, are in the five eyes, you know, between five eyes, the book. And I also did, you know, sea time and you know, all sorts of other odd jobs in between for the for the Royal Navy as well as intelligence. So, you know, that's my background. And academically, you asked me where I was educated. 
you know, I, uh, you know, I was, I was at, uh, I did my bachelor's and master's degrees at Durham University in England, and then a PhD at King's College London, which is famous for its war studies department. And I also did a master's degree in information systems and technology at the London School of Economics in the very early days of computer science, you know, in the early 70s when, you know, uh, computer programming uh, for most people, I mean, uh, the Bletchley Cloud and all the people involved in post-war GCHQ stuff and national security agencies, we're all into that. But, you know, in the commercial world, it was very much a, you know, a new thing. So I actually got a pretty good grounding in the very early 70s in information technology and computing and all of that, which stood me in good stead when I, you know, was running some very special programs that needed that, some of those skills. Oh, you're doing all kinds of fun stuff. I was, a, I, was yeah. I, went to, I went to West Point. My major was, I was a math major. And I, um, when I was leaving the army, I'd, I'd, I was supposed to go, I was going to go to London School of Economics and study operational oh. research. That was in 19, yeah. God, that would have been in 1992, Right. But yeah, alas, I moved a film came to town. I decided to give being an actor a, a, a try. So now it's so <laughs> That's wonderful. So, so things took a yeah. took a sudden turn. Yeah, I did an internship at the Naval Postgraduate School. Oh, yeah. Monterey. Yeah. In Monterey, well. 1986. Yeah. yeah. We had to go yeah. into like this. I mean, it was like going into a bank vault, you know, this room where they had all these coders and computers that were working. It was uh it was yeah. an interest interesting yeah. place. But you got a pretty early nod from I'm guessing Dr. Hinsberg. I'm not sure what it was you were working on, but um Hinsley. 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 Suddenly you were introduced to the secrets of you were shown this the, the keys of the kingdom of, of Bletchley Bletchley yes, Park. Correct. Could yeah. you describe that? In the late nineteen sixties, but it was still a highly classified no one knew about Bletchley. All the people who worked there were still sworn to secrecy well into the 1970s. And it wasn't until he went and became Sir Harry Hinsley. You know, my uh, mentor became Sir Harry Hinsley. He was the official historian of British intelligence in World War II. It's in multiple volumes. It's still the authoritative record. And it was then the government released the actual material. You know, the, uh, not all of it, by the way. There's some of it, you won't believe it, still to this day that's not being released for very good reasons even all these years later. Um, but I had access in the late 60s, and that was a complete eye-opener because I couldn't publish anything because it was highly classified still. Mm-hmm. What was the – I mean, you, you probably can't talk about – but what were some of the things that uh, that you, that's probably maybe surprised you the most that you can talk about when you first started working on Bletchley Park with Sir Harry Hinsley? I think the, the cleverness of the deception operations and the way in which, you know, Bletchley was integrated with a lot of the stuff that – you know, Admiral Godfrey and his, I mean, people don't realize that Ian Fleming was Admiral Godfrey's personal assistant. Oh, right. And they did some extraordinarily clever things. And then then you combine that with the double-cross system that Sir John Masterman worked because, you know, the Bletchley people were breaking the, all the Enigma stuff. And then these people were able to run these extraordinarily clever deception operations against the Nazis. And, you know, that was, I, I found that was the, the height of cleverness because they you know, they had all these captured German agents. So they, some of the some of whom wouldn't wouldn't turn and were executed for obviously uh, spies in Britain. But a lot of them would turn, and then Masterman with the Bletchley material was able to play back to the Nazis various very clever false narratives intermingled with accurate information using all the information from these Nazis. I mean, literally people that were now being played back into the Wehrmacht and the SD and the SS, you know, the Zischer Heinsteins and the Abwehr. So all of this was extraordinarily capable and clever stuff. I mean, some remarkable human beings were behind this. 
this is how the Bletchley material was used, as well as in the more conventional operational sense. I mean, the U-boat war was won, not completely with Bletchley material, but, you know, Hinsley in his hut, you know, they managed all of that stuff to position our units so we could destroy the U-boat force. I mean, it was a very critical mission that we actually knew where they were, where they were going, what, you know, what their plans were, and then we could go take them out, which is what we did. But we had to keep that uh, secret in ways that the Nazis didn't figure out. You know, Carl Dönitz, who ran the submarine force, became, you know, the head of the Navy, eventually took over from Admiral Rader. And then, you know, just for a few months after Hitler killed himself, was the head of the Third Reich until the uh, surrender. So Dönitz, we had to make sure that his people never figured out that we knew, you know, reading their traffic and knowing what their plans were and where they were disposing various units. I remember also reading a little bit about it when I was younger. I mean, at some point, I used to think of Bletchley Park as these, you know, counting machines and these, you know, complicated algorithms and programs yeah. trying to, you know, decode things. Yeah. But there were there were also just a lot of, like, I guess, count, kind of some, some kind of counterintuitive discoveries, like the whole idea of convoys, like the, the actual number of ships in a convoy. To kind of maximize the probability that you you would get the most amount of yeah. of men and materiel across across the ocean or across right. the channel, right. instead of sending them one right. at a time, the chances were the same of, of a hundred ships being discovered by you, but as it was correct. two or three ships. And That's so right. you've hit on a very good point. One of the one of the critical interfaces um, was the role of operations research, which was started in the Admiralty by someone who had access to Enigma and also worked with Admiral Godfrey was was a very famous guy called who became Lord Blackett. He wasn't anything like Lord Blackett in 1939, but he was the father of operations research, and he realized how to use mathematical techniques with the Bletchley material to actually predict and know where these where the U-boats were going to be relative to our convoy dispositions. And I knew Lord Blackett. He won the Nobel Prize in physics in the late 1940s, and um, I actually, when I worked for British intelligence, I actually used a lot of Blackett ideas. I'm not exaggerating. A lot of his ideas to basically fool the Soviet Union. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I, I actually, he was a wonderful guy and he taught me some things that I then transposed to various classified programs in my day. In the late 1970s, I was using Blackett ideas to, you know, fool the uh, Soviet Union in various clever ways I can't talk about now, but I... But so Blackett was a very important guy. Because I remember people were talking about, because they were talking about like, you know, a certain, maybe around the, just before the time where they found Osama bin Laden and there was the war on terror and they were trying to track these, um, they're trying to track a lot of, uh, you know, potential terrorists or, or Taliban or Al Qaeda members. And I remember talking to somebody who said, yeah, they're using this kind of math where they're predicting their locations. It's sort of a predictive geographical. <laughs> and I thought, God, that sounds sort of familiar. Yeah. You know, I mean, the way you were kind of, maybe it had something to do with the way they were tracking U-boats. Well, there was, there was a tech, there was a technique that came used later um, post-World War II. And you may be familiar with it. It's basically Bayesian mathematics based on a, actually Bayes was a, you won't believe this, was a British vicar who was a genius. And he was kind of unrecognized until much later, long after he was dead, and Bayesian mathematics use a thing called log likelihood theory, which is very different from traditional statistical probability theory. And I have used in various programs with a lot of people in the community uh, Bayesian techniques to solve some extraordinarily difficult problems. And it's it was it's been used in in that domain that you refer to. That's just one of hundreds and hundreds of applications 
to predict, you know, say movements of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or whatever, or, you know, lots of other different applications that traditional statistical methodologies just don't do. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't work. But Bayesian mathematics is, is, is in a science in its own right. And it's, it's been with modern computational capabilities brought to a huge new level of, of capability, actually. There were some discoveries, I think, that were just plain. I don't know if this was Sir Blackett or not in his crowd, but some of them were just plain counterintuitive. Like they started looking at some of the uh, bombers that were coming back. Could you tell us about that and yeah. how, they, how they decided to the placement of armaments? No, no. I mean, people like Alan Turing, I mean, he was a genius. I mean, and, it, and one of the things that I've tried to stress to the modern community is you, you don't necessarily need an army. You know, go and recruit a th- like we did after 9-11. We recruited all sorts of, I mean, literally hundreds, thousands of people into the community when actually what you need is a handful of hugely capable people, which is what Alan Turing was. I mean, he was a genius. But you want to have, you know, you don't need an army if you have really, really, really very smart people who have got the brain power to put together really unique, innovative capabilities. Because you can have a lot of people looking at a lot of material from now until the end of time and won't come up with any particularly necessarily right answers. But if you have the right people who are correctly trained and have that intellectual capacity, which I certainly don't have, I'm I'm not one of those, but I know people who are to this day, and I can count them on on both of my hands. And I know, happen to know one person who, a very distinguished former director of GCHQ and chairman of the JIC in London, once said to me, Tony, that particular man is another Alan Turing. And I, I can't mention his name, but, you know, people like that are in a league of their own. But they solve problems that actually create a capability that will change the nature of our security. I mean that sincerely. And it's, you know, in the cyber world, you need a few people like that, that, you know, you've got, you know, hundreds of companies peddling cyber right now, right? Action systems and all that. Yeah, but we all know that most of them don't work because of all the recent penetrations that have been in all the media. However, there are capabilities we have that have been designed and uh, introduced by some extraordinarily bright people that give us a leg up in this world against the bad guys. I remember I saw a play about Alan Turing. I think it was like 1984. Would have been like 1988 or 80, 1987. It was at the Lincoln Center, but I remember the gist of the play was that was that. I mean, it wasn't you know the later drama about Turing and the the movie that was that was recently made, but he really thought that you could simulate human consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> and these were like yeah. basic binary machines yeah. that were just clicking on and off at yeah. the time. And he jumped right. all the way ahead to like AI. Right. And I mean, at that time, people were like, "What are you talking about?" But that was the big. Yeah. That was sort of his uh, his gist that people thought he was a little bit nuts or one of his ideas. No, he was a genius. I mean, he was a huge, just, I mean, I mean, we all know the story of Alan Turing and what happened to him. But, you know, when you had the British prime minister get up in the House of Commons and apologize to the British people for how he was treated and then the Queen gave him a pardon for the so-called offenses he'd committed, you know, because of his sexual orientation. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just the biggest tragedy of all time. I mean, it's yeah. horrible what happened to him. You talked about cyber and stuff. I mean, you've had a career long enough to see things come back around. Whereas we think, oh, oh wow, you know, Sergey Skripal, you know, and what, 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 you know, the horrible things that yeah. happened to him. And then I look and read your book and you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, you were chasing GRU guys around back in the 70s. So that's correct. Um, I mean, that's what, correct. I mean, that must be, uh, is, is that a little frustrating? Yeah, well, part of it is, is the institute, what I call the institutional memory loss. And that's why. You know, in the book, I, I stress the cooperative nature of the five eyes, the exchange of 
personnel and the continuity that that gives to the community. I think, unfortunately, what happened after the Cold War, we lost a lot of institutional memory of a lot of the, if you like, the both the arts and science of intelligence, you know, the tradecraft side of it, the collection mechanisms, all sorts of clever stuff. You know, there was like a 10-year period until after 9-11 when we we lost a lot of people and we lost a lot of continuity in the community. And so I think that was a, a cause of, of some of the issues that occurred post 9-11 in the, in the community. But I still stress this whole business of exchanges, personnel of people like myself at the working level, not at the politician level. They come and go, as I said, you know, politicians come and go. But the exchange programs are critical because they maintain the continuity of not just of the arts and science of intelligence and daily operations and all that stuff, the analysis and reports, but it's to do with the institutional memory and passing on the skill base to, you know, the next generation. And I've been heavily involved in that recently because it's it's really important that people don't forget some of the things that we can do. I mean, I had a discussion. I, I, I don't think I'll mention his name, but I literally had coffee this morning for about an hour and a half with a former colonel in U.S. Special Forces who worked on the real black side of things with the agency as well as, you know, the U.S. Army. And we were talking about, you know, various aspects that, have been institutionally lost that we now need to recreate because of the situation with China and Iran and uh, and Russia, as well as international terrorism generally. And we were talking about the whole drug thing and how that funds the wartime economy out of Afghanistan through Iran, the role of Pakistan in all of this stuff, which is pretty well known by people like me and him, and what we now need to do in order to counter all this. And in a sense, control it and, if you like, manipulate it to our advantage. Well, some of the ways of doing all this have been lost, um, and we know how to do that. And he and I were discussing that uh, this morning. I had a meeting. I mean, and he's he's not my age, but he's, you know, he's uh, he's been around a long, long time and done a lot of very special stuff. And so people like him and a whole body of others that we know are very important to maintain that continuity of thought because – you know, young people coming into the community nowadays have no idea. I mean, they don't. I mean, it's not, not a criticism. It's just an observation of fact. So they need to be trained by people like him and me because a lot of this stuff isn't known even by – I mean, I know people now who, you know, are very senior in the agency or MI6 who, I mean, frankly, you know, joined, you know, long, long after I'd been working over here for a number of years. So, you know, can you imagine that loss of continuity? Yeah. You know, just just through time, right? So we need to keep that going. We need to still instill in the younger generation some of this extremely clever stuff that can be transposed in the modern digital era into new and innovative applications. But the concepts are still there. You just have to make sure people know what they are. You know, when dealing with, you know, the heroin, you know, exports from Afghanistan and how that funds various, you know, Taliban and Al Qaeda operations and, you know, all the mismatch that goes on with countries like Iran, which is a very big export avenue for heroin, which people, most people don't know about. You know, a lot of it's coming through Iran as well as Pakistan and, you know, how we can manage and control all of that to our security advantage. Yeah, because that's money. That's money that pays for weapons, pays for, for people. It pays to keep them alive and well so they can do bad things. You know, without a, without weapons and without, without money, without weapons, 
what do you do tomorrow morning? It's called very little. Right. I mean, one hand, there's, you know, there's cyber and there's all this other stuff and people are dealing on the, you know, the dark web and doing all these deals and so forth. But you've got to ship heroin from one place to another. I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a physical supply chain involved, you know? No, that's right. That's right. And it's not rocket science to understand that supply chain, particularly when you have, you know, various communications capabilities and, you know, other sources that enable you to figure out all of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then you can start playing games with all of that. I mean, by games, I mean ser- serious security games to to the advantage of the United States and our allies and decent people around the world to stop, you know, all of that being used, not just because of the negative effects of of the drug trade on human beings, but also because the way it funds the bad guys to do extraordinarily bad things against really good people like you and me. I first heard five eyes. I thought, okay, there's got to be an eye patch involved somewhere. It's like two guys and one guy with an eye patch. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said United States. So it must be United States, England, and Israel. No, no, no. United States, the UK are the founding members, and then the UK brought along its you know, three original colonial partners of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, because they were, you know, during World War II, you know, they were part of the, you know, dare I say it, the British Empire, they were Dominion. So the Australians, Canadians, and Kiwis modeled, you know, they they model with obviously support, direct support from the UK, both their, you know, what 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 is MI6, you know, the human side of things, MI5, the counterintelligence side, and GCHQ or Bletchley Park, as it was in those days, on the terms of communications intercept capability. So all of those three modeled their organizations on the British models. And then the British with the US joined at the hip, largely through naval connections, by the way, we can talk about that. It was very much Navy driven. There's, I mean, CIA didn't exist until 1947. There was no NSA. You know, there was an army intelligence. You know, the Air Force didn't exist as an organization until 1947, mm-hmm. US Air Force. I mean, it was the Army Air, you know, Army Air Corps. And so the Navy, which its organization had been founded in 1882, going to be 150 years old in 2032, slightly older than British naval intelligence. I mean, the US. So the, the Navy side of things is very important because that was the cooperative venture between the US and the UK eventually. And also on the British side, the Navy formed the backbone for the other organizations. Both the during World War One with the whole Blinker Hall stuff in Room Forty and the Zimmerman Telegram, and then Commander Mansfield coming, Navy Commander founded was the first director, and C he signed himself C because he's Cummings, right? Was the first director of the British Secret Intelligence Service MI6 was Navy, and so that tradition went through the twenties and thirties into World War Two when you had. Bletchley Park was run by guess who? A Navy commander, Denniston, Alistair Denniston. Uh, and so, and then you had Admiral Godfrey running uh, British Naval Intelligence, which was crucial, along with uh, Stuart Menzies, who was the head of MI6. But there was a lot of distrust between the two organizations because, you know, he had a lot of ne'er do well people in MI6. I mean, guess who was one of their key members and head of the Iberian section of MI6? Kim Philby, the biggest British traitor of all time. So people like Godfrey, they kept things very tight. And people like Ian Fleming and all the other staff that worked for Godfrey and ran all these spooky operations together with the Bletchley crowd, you know, Harry Hinsley, my mentor and PhD guide and everything. You know, these people ran all these hugely highly classified operations, which Winston Churchill insisted be kept 
so tight, God bless him, from people who didn't need to know. Right. And it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't until the Hinsley in the 18, really in the 1980s that the whole Bletchley thing became seriously known. I mean, I, I know people who, you know, I wrote an article about the, the lady, she's nearly 100 years old, who ran the typing pool at Bletchley Park. And, you know, she had to keep quiet for all of her life until, you know, Hinsley's stuff was made public by the British government. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Like yeah. her whole life. What do you do? I'm a typist. What do you type? I can't, I can't say. Yeah, I know. I know. She, she, oh, she, ran the, she, she was a Royal Air Force, Women's Royal Air Force sergeant. She ran the typing pool. You know, all the ladies who typed up when all the intercepts have been translated, analyzed, and put into report form. She was the final in charge of the typing that went to Deniston and then went out to Churchill and the Chiefs of Staff and head of MI6 right. and Naval Intelligence and everyone. I mean, I mean, it sounds like, well, typing, but, you know, that was crucial. I mean, she typed the final product that landed on the Prime Minister. And, by the way, was sent across here to, you know, secretly to Franklin Roosevelt through a very special operation that I write about in, in New York City in Rockefeller Plaza, headed by a guy called William Stevenson with the best-kept secret of the war. Okay, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, Winston Churchill had an incredible man called, he was later Sir William Stevenson. He was a Canadian by birth, and he operated out of Rockefeller Plaza in New York City secretly, absolutely secretly throughout the war. And he was the go-between between Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. And during the period up until Pearl Harbor, then there was still a lot of political, media, public equivocation about America joining, you know, the Europeans against the war against the Nazis before Pearl Harbor. All this secret stuff was going on. And guess who was the interface between Franklin Roosevelt and um, Stevenson in New York? A man called Donovan, who became the head, Wild Bill Donovan. He became the head of the old. He was a, he was a chief, station, station chief in Berlin too, yeah. Yeah, yeah OSS. He was the, he was the link. And so the material would come into that office, be hand-carried down to Washington very secretly because Roosevelt was absolutely worried silly that someone would give it away and he'd be accused of, you know, secretly working with Churchill to bring America into the war, which he knew was going to happen because the Bletchley material was showing exactly what the Japanese were up to. Um, so all that was kept extraordinarily secret throughout the whole war. And then people like Philby didn't have access, thank God. You know, none of the traitors ever had access to the real gold. Thank goodness. It was kept extremely tight. And people like Harry Hinsley, my mentor, I mean, wonderful guy. I mean, these people who did all the real work bore these secrets for another 40 years. So that that's, a, you know, that's something that's not really been, I've got a new book coming out. I don't want to go into it, but it's called, well, it's, uh, maybe we shouldn't talk about it now because you want to get on with other things, but it's okay. No, tell me, you got another book you're working on? Yeah, it's called, it's called Crossroads in Time, Philby and Angleton, A Story of Treachery. It's about the relationship between uh, Kim Philby, the ultimate British traitor of all time, who defected to the Soviet Union in right. 1963, and James Jesus Angleton, who was the famous and infamous head of counterintelligence for 20 years of the Central Intelligence Agency till he was figured out as being uh, unworthy for lots of reasons that we don't have time to go into, and he was fired by the director in, in the 1970s. But the Philby-Angleton relationship has never been properly explored and researched and written about, and I'm, I've just got a manuscript that explores all that. And the crucial part of it leads up to the period 1961 through to 63 with the Bay of Pigs 
disaster at the agency, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then the assassination of President Kennedy in November 1963, and the whole stuff to do with Lee Harvey Oswald and blah, blah, blah. This has never been told. And I think President Biden's recent statement that at some point we will release some classified material about the assassination. Well, my book explores a lot of those issues. Oh, good. Yeah, you're going to like it. It's called Crossroads in Time, Philby and Angleton, A Story of Treachery. But just on the Cambridge Five, was there another one that wasn't caught? No, they they got them all. I mean, Burgess and McLean were the worst. You know, they were Philby friends. They're all at Cambridge together. And Philby recruited Burgess. They're both at Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, McLean was a really bad guy. They were the worst of the five. The others were, I wouldn't say insignificant, but they were nowhere near as dangerous. I mean, McLean gave away all the JIC material, everything to the Russians because he was in the cabinet office, had access, very important positions. And Burgess, you know, had been working in MI6 and then ended up in Washington. Would you believe not only here when Philby was the head of the MI6 delegation in the British embassy, he lived personally in Philby's house in Washington. Yeah. People don't know that. They actually lived with him. And so it was pretty notorious. And then, of course, Venona, you know, gave away the whole, I don't know if you know what Venona is. Do you know what Venona was? Heard about it, but I forgot it. Okay. Venona was this. Venona was a very special um, intercept capability. Very much, this is why, you know, the people like the Aussies and the Kiwis and the Canadians, they get, they get well, they're minor players. They're not minor players. They're very significant players. The Aussies were very brilliant at both figuring out through some very special human sources and effective and people that they basically recruited that clearly the British had some spies working inside the highest level of British intelligence. And then Venona was the hugely secret special intercept of KGB and GRU communications. All right. And so that showed that you've got some rotten apples in the barrel, British. They're in London. Well, they weren't just in London. I mean, Philby was here in, in Washington, D.C., and it was here, he was here when, and this is why my book about him and Angleton had become very important, because how did Philby get to know about the Venona material, and how did he tip off Burgess that he was going to be nailed, and similarly with McLean? And how'd they all get out? Yeah. Well, read my book. It all points, <laughs> it all points to JJ. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that, that was, Venona was a very, very, yeah, go ahead. Go that was probably, I'm guessing, probably one of the most significant challenges to the Five Eyes. Yeah. No, nowadays we have, you know, after the whole Cambridge Five thing, I mean, we've had, we've had people over here, you know, you've had the Navy spies, the Walker brothers, and obviously the CIA spy and then the FBI spy. I mean, but what we have done, I think, is try to create the very best, what, what in Britain was called PVing, positive vetting of people like me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was torn apart when I joined the community to be given all the top secret clearances and things and join the community. I mean, you literally open up your whole life, sign away everything, which is good. I mean, I fully approve. You know, um, they need to know everything about you. Well, they didn't in those days. It was all done on an old boy network of, well, I went to Cambridge, you know, I went to a good school. I know all the right people. I got a good degree and, you know, I'm, I'm a decent chap, right? Well, that was, that was what they believed. Well, of course, people like Philby, you know, being recruited by the KGB at Cambridge as an undergraduate, similarly with Burgess and McLean. And so, you know, all of that was. Straight into the house of Bonafides, right? Yeah. Straight into yeah. MI6. So, you know, all of that changed. It didn't mean to say that people slipped through the net, uh, but I think nowadays, I think with the 
electronic capabilities we've got, you know, in terms of money and phone calls and emails and everything else, it would be very difficult for a bad guy or bad girl to um, do bad things. Yeah. I mean, I think we'd have caught Ames. I mean, Ames was so obvious it isn't true. I mean, you look at Ames, it's like, well, how the hell did the CIA not figure him out? Yeah. Maybe I should interview him sometime. Somebody said, oh, you should call him. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Too soon. <laughs> so I watched I watched an episode of the Sandbaggers. Yeah. There's an episode of the Sandbaggers yeah. where the lead character has some information and he knows he's got to tell the Americans because of the Five Eyes Agreement. They mentioned the Five Eyes Agreement. And I forget the episode. I think he, even like whoever he works for, whatever minister he's talking to, it becomes this big discussion. Should they tell the Americans? Should they tell the Americans? And finally, he decides, the, the lead guy, I forget what his name is, but he decides, I'm going to tell his American CIA counterpart. And yeah. he sits down and has a drink, and then he tells this American counterpart this piece of intelligence or information that they have. And um, and he reveals, oh, yeah, I already knew. <laughs> But it made you think there must be nowadays so many ways to kind of uh, test that relationship, the information that both sides know. Yeah. You know, what are you revealing? Yeah. What are you not revealing? Um, it seems like it would almost be obvious to, to both sides in some ways. I'm just wondering if. I mean, the relationship between GCHQ, which is the biggest uh, British intelligence organization, far bigger than MI5 or MI6 or defense intelligence, and the National Security Agency is absolutely golden. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's. 24 7. Um, the CIA MI6 stuff is important, but you know, if you look at just the human side of things, which is really diminishing now because of all the modern surveillance problems and internet and all the other stuff that is very difficult for, you know, uh, human agents to operate the way we used to. And it's, it's a changing world. And so that's, that's a little different. But there are other techniques now based on AI, um, quantum computing, all sorts of clever stuff that's evolving that, you know, counteracts the loss of traditional human sources, unless you're in somewhere in Africa or South America or wherever where, you know, human can still be a valuable source because they're not, their surveillance isn't like the Chinese or the Russians or, you know, the Iranians or whatever. So, you know, that's the changing nature of the business. But I think to come back to your point about, you know, security, I think the level of cooperation between uh, the US and the UK, the Canadians, Australians and New Zealanders is as good as it's ever been. And I think, you know, one of the issues that's been in the media recently is do we need to expand the five eyes? Well, we already have, you know, we have over here a thing called the Quad, which involves, you know, India and Japan together with Australia and the United States in Asia. So we're exchanging a lot of intelligence between, because India is becoming a very, very significant player now, as we all know, in the whole China scenario. India is becoming very, very crucial. And the Japanese have been allies for a long time, as we all know. But, you know, I've been asked, well, do we need to expand the Five Eyes? My answer to that is no, because we already have very good multilateral exchanges with people like the Japanese and the Indians and people like the Malaysians, for example, we don't need to give away the farm. You know, you don't suddenly give up all the stuff that they don't necessarily need to know because they don't they don't need to know. Not that we're hiding anything deliberately and being, you know, that overcautious because, well, they, they don't need to know. And we can exchange things on a quid pro quo basis where they have stuff that we need and we give them stuff. Like, for example, in the Indian Ocean, we share a lot of, if you like, naval related things, surveillance things with the Indians and vice versa. It's mutually beneficial. But do you open up the whole of Pandora's box to India? I don't think so. 
or to Japan yeah. because they don't yeah. really need it. They don't need they don't so we wouldn't want to give away a lot of sources and methods that you know could be compromised through um bad security, which we have no control over, or at least within the five eyes, both the all the countries involved have extraordinarily good now competent counterintelligence capabilities, both for recruitment purposes and then for current operations. So we are keeping an eye on both our own people as well as the bad guys in a very effective way. So we don't have another Ames or another Philby or McLean and Burgess and all those people. It seems like it would have an enormous, not only value for like discovery, but just for confirmation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think we've built, we've, we've got these relationships maturing with the Japanese and with the Indians and, you know, obviously South Korea's on board and Malaysia and people. And so, you know, I think it, it's all a question of evolving, you know, those levels of cooperation, which each of the five eyes has done together, but also separately. So each of them has had their own built-in relationships, which is hugely beneficial to the five eyes as a whole. So like, for example, the Australians, you know, they have their own, you know, ways of doing things, their own human and all that, similarly with the, with the, with the Kiwis. I mean, people think, well, what does New Zealand do for the five eyes, a little country like that? Well, it's, it's caught a lot. I mean, I always tell people the story about, you know, Spy Valley, Cab, uh, you know, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. They go, what are you talking about? I said, well, have you ever been to the vineyard in, you know, northern part of South Island in the, that Marlborough wine growing areas? And there's a, a vineyard called Spy Valley. And they go, Ooh, what's that about? I said, well, if you go down past the vineyard, a few miles up and over the hill, you'll, you'll come to a facility that looks like the National Security Agency. <laughs> all right. And in it are all sorts of people. And they're not just Kiwis. You know, they're all our Five Eyes friends, and they're all running extraordinarily important operations there, you know, in Spy Valley. <laughs> it's called Spy Valley. And similarly with Pine Gap in, in Australia, I mean, just south of Alice Springs. I mean, for example, how many people do you think Americans approximately just right now, as you and I are chatting, are working at Pine Gap in Australia? Approximately. How many people? American citizens? Three about 3,000. About 3,000. Three, yeah. So any anyone who says, oh, well, the Aussies, what are they worth? Is called one heck of a lot. And similarly with the Canadians. Canadians do just as much as the Aussies and the, and the Kiwis. So geographically, they may not be the size of America in terms of population and income, but they contribute enormously because they are well-organized. They have these long traditions that go back to World War II and these inbuilt capabilities, which we developed over the last 70 years so or 80 years. So it's non-trivial. Yeah. And also, and also there's sort of the sort of off the radar in some ways, you don't, you kind of unex, yeah. unexpected. It's not like a major player in the, you know, the yeah, hybrid, exactly. the hybrid war. It's, yeah. And strategically, and the fact the that we're going to we're going to sell the you know not sell but develop with the Aussies you know these nuclear powered submarines, which has been hugely controversial because the French Prime Minister jumped up and down for a while. I mean, that they're going to bring a capability. I mean, submarines are very important intelligence collectors on a twenty four seven basis, round the clock, and go places and do things that, for example, we can't get from satellites or from human or some other source. I mean, they are extremely important intelligence collectors, not just against what I would call traditional naval targets. They collect mm -hmm. all sorts of other stuff I won't go into. And so um, that's one of the reasons the Australians need nuclear-powered submarines on station with a lot you know, higher speed, quieter, and have the capability to go out there for a couple of months and hide around and do all sorts of spooky things. French have never tried to be part of the Five Eyes, have they? No, I mean, I mean, I think de Gaulle cooked the uh, golden goose in France by taking them out of NATO and being yeah. so nationalistic. And I think the French have not really 
I mean, they're back in NATO, but I don't think they ever really recovered from the, you know, as a nation, psychologically and emotionally from the de Gaulle era, where France mm-hmm. was still, you know, vive la France, uh, la France, c'est moi, and all the stuff that de Gaulle spouted. And I think they're still, they're trusted, but not 100%. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I was just talking to someone recently about, I mean, you're familiar with the Rosenholtz files that were, they were kind of found in the, yes. in the nineties that yeah. list listed all these um, assets and, yeah. and agents in Germany yeah. and abroad. Germans are still a little, uh, still a little peaked that, uh, you know, Americans didn't share the, the entire find with them. No, exactly. I mean, it's still the true today. I mean, you know, you have the NATO intelligence sharing stuff, which, you know, is done through SACUR, you know, which is, you know, as good as it gets in terms of warning and indicators, capabilities, you know, where the Russians are today and what they can and can't do and all that. I mean, that's all pretty common knowledge amongst the NATO allies. But, you know, a lot of the more sensitive stuff, obviously, we don't share for very good reasons. Um, And it's not about we don't trust them. It's like, well, you don't want to open up the web on the barrel because in the barrel, you you know, you have 10,000 apples rather than 100. One or two of them are going to be bad. And you run that risk. Yeah. You can't control what you don't know and what you don't, you know, don't have direct access to once you've given away material. Um, it's it's that simple. Can't control what you don't know. This has been uh this has been a real a real uh, a real treat being able to talk to you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. I do this thing called the dozen decisions at the end, where um you'll answer uh, some questions and I'll give it to my analysts and they you know, they'll, they'll form some sort of judgment about your personality. Okay. <laughs> maybe, we can, maybe we can, maybe we can use it to enhance the institutional knowledge of the intelligence community somehow. I don't really know, but it's a dozen oh, questions and we'll go from there. Okay. Question one, army or Navy? Navy. Yeah, I knew that one. Okay. Uh, John Licari or Ben McIntyre? Uh, ben McIntyre. All right. Stripes or solids? What was that? <laughs> stripes or solids like a pattern oh i think i think I, I think i go for stripes yeah you go for stripes okay uh we mentioned this before but sandbaggers or the prisoner sandbaggers or what that television show the prisoner uh, james mcguin starred in it remember they took all these spies and they put them on an island and they had them go through all these weird head games yeah yeah i think i'll go for sandbaggers ludlum or clancy clancy crunchy or smooth I base that on one thing only. It's called The Hunt for Red October. A lot of his books I didn't like, but I did like I did like the first, you know, I, I like The Hunt for Red October was published by the Naval Institute Press, which I have a very strong relationship with. And I've always thought the Naval Institute doesn't get recognition for having discovered Clancy, actually. Yeah, that book was amazing yeah. when it came out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that's still a, a, an enduring story, The Hunt for Red October. I love it. Yeah. Uh, crunchy or smooth? Crunchy. Crunchy. Wow, no, no question about that one. Truth or dare? I'm a truth person. Yeah. Uh, Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. I was brought up with the Beatles. I, I went to I went to the cavern uh, as a midshipman before anyone knew who the Beatles were. Oh, you saw them play? Yeah, yeah. When I was very, very young. Yeah, they they only they were kind of becoming known, but no one really kind of knew that they were going to change the world. Yeah. Uh, facts or feelings? I'm a facts person. Covert or clandestine? Clandestine. Black bag or burn bag? Black bag. Okay. Uh, Matrokin files or Stasi files? Stasi files, definitely. And the last question, drum roll please. Live drop or, and trust me, I won't take this personally, whoever you answer, but live drop or dead drop? Oh, definitely live drop. No oh. question. It's not out, of, <laughs> not out of blind loyalty. It's because you actually want a good show. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Anyway, really fun. Let's talk again. Thank you very much. And a pleasure. 
That was my talk with Anthony Wells. His book is Between Five Eyes, 50 Years Inside the Five Eyes Intelligence Community. And also his next book should be coming up pretty soon. Um, Crossroads in Time, Philby and Angleton, the story of treachery. So let's keep our eyes out for that as well. End of transmission. Transmission.